Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Republicans in the New York State Senate have filed a lawsuit to force a vote of the full Senate on Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee for the state's next chief judge. Hector LaSalle was rejected by the Senate Judiciary Committee last month. We get more from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which is dominated by Democrats who hold the majority in the chamber, rejected LaSalle by a 2-10 to 10 vote following a five-hour hearing. Opponents, including several leading Democratic senators, said they believed LaSalle was too conservative and that they want to see the high court change direction to become more liberal. The six Republicans on the committee voted, along with one Democrat, to advance LaSalle's name from the committee, but without recommendation. At the time, Senate Majority leader Andrea Stork-Cousins said she believed that the Senate had fulfilled its duties under the state's constitution. It's clear that this nominee was rejected and that's it. But Governor Hochul, who is also a Democrat, disagreed. She said she believes that the constitution requires all 63 senators to vote. The constitution in the state of New York is clear. New York State Senate has to advise and consent the governor on her appointment. Republicans in the Senate sided with Hochul. Now the ranking Republican on the committee, Senator Anthony Palumbo, has filed a lawsuit in state Supreme Court in Suffolk County on Long Island. Palumbo, in a statement, says the Judiciary Committee serves only as an advisory body to the rest of the Senate and that the state's constitution requires that the full Senate must cast a vote. Senate Minority Leader Robert Ort said in January that his GOP conference was not going to rush to judgment regarding the nominee. And they believe he should get a hearing and a, a floor vote. A spokesman for the Senate Democratic majority, Mike Murphy, said in a statement that the Democrats have not been served with any lawsuit. And he says it's embarrassing, but not surprising, that the Senate Republicans have no understanding of law or the Constitution. Hochul, who had threatened her own lawsuit over the confirmation process through a spokesperson, declined to comment on the court filing. New York State constitutional experts disagree on whether the lawsuit will be successful. Noah Rosenblum, a law professor at New York University, says by his reading of the Constitution, a governor is not entitled to a full Senate vote on a nomination that requires the advice and consent of the Senate. Rosenblum spoke on Albany Public Radio station WAMC before the lawsuit was announced. The Constitution does not give any gubernatorial nominee a right to a floor vote. So the the basic question, if you're going to talk about a lawsuit, is, wait, hold on, what exactly is the constitutional right that needs to be asserted here? And I just can't find one. Albany Law School professor Vin Bonventry, also speaking on WAMC and before the lawsuit was filed, disagrees. The state constitution speaks of the governor shall appoint with advice and consent of the Senate. It doesn't say part of the Senate. Even if the court action is successful, there's no guarantee that LaSalle would gain enough votes to be confirmed to be chief judge. GOP senators have not committed to vote for LaSalle, and without them, the nominee would likely be rejected. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Legislative Gazette's political observer Alan Shartok spoke with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli this week and began by asking for the Comptroller's analysis of the governor's state budget proposal. Well, I think it's fair to say that the state is in good shape right now. We certainly uh, have continued to see tax collections coming in uh, higher than projected, and that's good news. The all fund spending, uh, you know, you, the operating funds is about 125 billion. All funds is 227 billion, so it's a, a record number. Um, but we have to be mindful that uh, the out-year budget gaps are projected to grow. And so, I, w- I mean, my overall takeaway, she's made some important decisions on investing more, particularly in education and health care. She's building up the rainy day reserves, the money we put aside for when uh, times will not be so good. I think that's an excellent move on her part. Uh, but as we know, the legislature now gets the proposal. There'll be a lot of give and take. And uh, I would just urge caution because we we really don't know where this economy is headed and ultimately what the impact on state revenues will be. Uh, and it's that uncertainty that makes uh, budgeting a little more difficult this year than some other years. So how's she getting along with everybody else, all the guys, everybody else in our organized political area? Well, you know, Kathy Hochul benefits from uh, being a genuine nice person and having built relationships uh, for many years prior to her becoming governor and I think that sense of goodwill about her uh, has has uh, has continued uh, I think it's pretty clear though that on some of the policy and the politics there are some uh, disagreements with uh, you certainly saw her with the Democrats in the Senate with regard to her pick for chief judge for the Court of Appeals Obviously, her wading in on the issue of uh, bail reform and some of the criminal justice issues, that's going to be very much debated. Uh, So, look, I think that in terms of her personal credibility to to engage in dialogue, I I think that continues to be there. But there there are clearly going to be some policy and and budget battles uh, that loom ahead. Let's hope that everybody sticks to the substance and uh, the debate doesn't get out of control. We need to have the budget done on time by April 1st. We need to show that the state is still doing its business. Um, So we'll see. I mean, the process is really just starting off. So, Controller Tom DiNapoli, how are you personally getting along with your governor? I think we're getting along fine. I was very pleased that she closed out the year 2022 by signing our legislation that restored our oversight ability on on contracts. I think that was a major positive step. uh, What was that all about? Let me interrupt you and ask you what that was all about. There may be people who are listening who don't quite understand it. Well, certainly, as we've talked about on on your show in the past, under the prior administration, the prior governor, there had been uh, a series of actions taken at the governor's recommendation with the approval of the legislature to limit uh, what's called our contract review or pre-ordered authority, particularly with regard to certain SUNY and CUNY contracts and these big centralized contracts that are given out by the Office of General Services. So it really took away that 
role of accountability that the controller's office provides to look out for the best value for taxpayers, uh, all under the m mistaken uh, notion that that would make the government process more efficient. In fact, what it did is eliminated an important checks and balance, and we certainly have seen some excesses in that regard over the years. So there has been a concerted effort, uh, thankfully championed by uh, members of the legislature, to restore that uh, contract review authority back to what it had been for like 100 years before. So the, the bill to do that overwhelmingly passed the legislature, but the governor did not deal with it till the very last week of uh, 2022. So we weren't sure where it was headed. Uh, we were glad that she restored that authority. Well, it sounds reasonable, but why did she hold her horses? How come it didn't not move sure. forward? Yeah. Not sure. That I can't speak to, but in the end, she did the right thing. That's good. Now, a press release from your office says that you, DiNapoli, calls for a long-needed debt reform, recommends comprehensive and binding limits, and more accountability to voters. So, could you put that into English for us? <laughs> well, this is always a tough topic. It's important because New York State, you know, Moody's identified New York as having the highest debt burden in the nation after California, uh, and it limits our options for the future. When you have... Uh, growing debt burden, it means you're paying more in debt service, uh, limits money that you can spend on, on, on current projects. And we've never really gotten uh, our arms around effective debt management at the state. Now, we have in statute something called the Debt Reform Act of, I think it was the year 2000, uh, that's been on the books, obviously, for a long period of time, which sets a, a cap, a limit. It's tied to the percent of personal income tax uh, in the state. But the problem, Alan, has been mm -hmm. that we've uh, gotten around that debt cap, how the legislature has routinely, again, you know, working with the, whoever the governor was at the time, to uh, notwithstand the provisions of the uh, debt reform cap. So we borrowed uh, way beyond what the cap uh, was intended. Uh, to limit, making the cap meaningless. How so do we we'll get away with that? Act, oh, simple. Uh, just it, it's an act of the legislature uh, in the context of the budget uh, every year. It just it happens. Look, debt, re, debt, when you talk about debt, and I appreciate you're asking about it, but I have to say of all the issues we've talked about over the years in the Comptroller's Office, the one that seems to get the least attention seems to be the snooze button, unfortunately, is when you start talking about debt, because it's just a big amorphous topic, and it deals with the, the future more than the present. And you know what the tendency is in government. If we have a need to spend for a program, uh, we'll spend the money if we have it. Uh, if we don't have it, it's easier to borrow to pay for it rather than cut some other program or raise taxes. And that's really, you know, what, what the modus operandi has been for a long time. So what we're trying to do is say, hey, look, folks, our, our, our debt burden is growing. We have a cap in place that, that's meaningless. The, the, the rating agencies have said consistently this is one of the weaknesses for New York State. Our, our borrowing, and government will always have to borrow. We're not saying that debt is, is, is not an important part of doing business, but, but our ability to borrow would come in more cost-effectively if we had a more clear management of our debt. So our proposal would would set a and, and the, the the main point of it is rather than doing it by by statute by law, we would do it by constitutional amendment. That's New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli speaking with Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartong.
are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand announced her dairy policy priorities in advance of the upcoming Farm Bill negotiations. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. Gillibrand noted that with nearly 3,500 dairy farmers, the state is the fifth largest producer of milk in the nation and the largest producer of yogurt and cheese. But the Democrat says dairy farmers struggle because of the complicated and outdated method of setting dairy prices and a web of other challenges that spiked over the past few years. During the pandemic, prices rose for everything from labor and fuel to corn and the soy used for feed. And dramatic changes in demand meant that milk producers were forced to dump gallons of milk, even while many dairy farmers were unable to benefit from booming cheese prices. More recently, a trade dispute with Canada has left many farmers unable to benefit from expanded market access opportunities. These difficulties have compounded already existing challenges such as the growing impact of climate change and the inability of small family farms to compete with mega producers. The amount dairy farmers are paid for their milk is set by a federal milk marketing system, which Gillibrand characterizes as, quote, one of the most complicated and out-of-date economic systems in our nation, unquote. As Congress prepares to debate the 2023 Farm Bill, she is reintroducing what she calls the Dairy Pricing Opportunity Act. Dairy farmers play a central role in New York's state economy. They shouldn't struggle to get by just because the milk pricing system we use hasn't been reformed in any major way for the last 20 years. Last Congress, I introduced a bill, a Dairy Pricing Opportunity Act, to start the process of reevaluating the federal dairy pricing system and give farmers more of a voice in the process. And I'll be reintroducing it to help give dairy farmers the ability to price their products in a way that meets their needs. It will be an important step in making sure the federal dairy pricing formula compensates dairy farmers fairly. The proposal would require the Federal Department of Agriculture to hold hearings to review the milk pricing system with input from dairy farmers. New York Farm Bureau Deputy Public Policy Director Lauren Williams says it would help to have hearings in which dairy farmers could provide direct input on pricing. It's been over 30 years since we've seen any type of major reform to the federal orders. Um, One of the bigger items, and this was a change in the last farm bill, was the class one price of milk. That's something we typically refer to as fluid milk. And they changed that. And our folks, after going through COVID, saw that that change wasn't really helpful. So they would like to go back to what was pre-2018 farm bills. But also looking at just having hearings and having USDA collect better data and information on how producers may face a payment for how milk is produced. The Farm Bill is updated every five years and includes provisions related to agriculture, nutrition and food assistance programs such as SNAP, conservation and rural development. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. 
I'm David Gustina. Back with us on the Legislative Gazette is Dr. Lynn Porodnik, a medical cannabis doctor from Westchester County area of New York. Lynn, always good to talk to you. Welcome back. Thanks, David. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Something new today to talk about. In fact, newsworthy. I'll let you break the news to our listeners. Well, it turns out Cureleaf is shutting down California, Oregon, and Washington operations. Now tell us what Cureleaf is and the significance of what's happening here. Cureleaf is the largest operator in the cannabis business in the world. They're in, at this point, I don't know how many states, but a lot of them, and they're international as well. The founder, Boris Jordan, is an American and has alleged ties with a Russian oligarch, so that gets a little interesting. And Cureleaf is sending my patients directly solicitations to get $99 certifications with LeafWell. LeafWell, they claim when I call the dispensary, is an affiliate. I have spoken with LeafWell. I have sent emails to corporate at both LeafWell and Cureleaf. I don't appreciate people poaching my patients. As far as I know, this is not legal. It violates HIPAA that they're contacting patients directly to send them to different doctor. By the way, not Lynn... Cool. Just as a confirmation for what you're saying here, it is against HIPAA. I checked locally here after speaking with you with Verilife Medical Dispensary in Albany, and they said that's a big no-no. You can't poach doctors' patients. That's definitely against HIPAA. Exactly. So I'm being very polite in my discussion today because I don't like to, unless I have the law cited in front of me, I don't like to pull punch cards. However, I feel very violated personally. I contacted Cureleaf and Leafwell. Cureleaf sent me to the marketing person who tells me they do this in many, many states. And it's not to poach patients, but to give patients the opportunity to continue in the program. In my return email, I explained I have never turned away a patient who's enrolled with me because they can't afford to continue. There are people I've taken less than $99 from. I have a working relationship and this medicine works for them. I really, really find it ridiculous that they are doing this. I spoke with the CEO of LeafWell, Emily Fisher, who actually offered me a job. Oh, really? Work for them. Oh, yeah. What would you I do? Would you be a doctor for them? That's what they would like. I can see 30 patients a day and be reimbursed between 25 and $45 per session. I politely declined and said, this is not my style of practicing medicine. I'd rather do pro bono and do it right than crank out 30 pieces of paper. That's not medicine. That's paperwork. Thank you very much. I also pointed out to her that I visited their White Plains address, which they published, which is a strip mall and they don't have an office. And she explained that they have health kiosks. They did that a while ago. Well, I looked at the area and it's not an area that they would get much participation in. It's a really downtown urban-y kind of site. A lot of beer cans around there. So it's just these pieces are not clicking together to be polite. So now I'm looking forward to speaking with the marketing people at Curaleaf and see what they propose, how they're trying to explain this. In the meantime, I know you've talked to other doctors and have even someone you know who's a lawyer in terms of a somewhat of a coalition forming to speak to the legislative leaders, get the information out there, and hopefully see some enforcement when it comes to this behavior you're talking about. 
Absolutely. I contacted my local senator, Peter Harcum, who is really going to look diligently into this. He and I have spoken in the past. He's had meetings with me. We, we speak extensively about cannabis and the current opioid issues and working with cannabis as an exit strategy. And he's really a strong proponent of this. And he's willing to roll up his sleeves and do what he should do for his constituents. Plus, he believes in this kind of medicine. So I'm not willing to just sit back and say another fine day in paradise because this is unethical and it's not fair to patients either. It's very confusing for them to get a notice from a dispensary that I have said is fine to go to, to then go to another doctor. A lot of patients, older ones, kind of assume that I gave permission so they could get a cheaper rate. And that's very deceptive, the way this is sent out. And it's unethical, and it is not legal. And there are other things that they are doing as well. Well, I have to ask, as a reporter, what other things are they doing? You mentioned there are other things as well. What other things? If you look into a search, they've been reprimanded in Oregon for selling tincture oils that were labeled CBD, and they were THC. There's a bunch of these kind of mislabeling things, and there's allegations about oligarch financial backing since the war in Ukraine, this is not legal. So there's a lot, a lot of details out there. And it's time people say no to Big Canna. If this is their behavior, they should be accountable just like Big Pharma is. Well, and that brings us to the rollout of the recreational market in New York. We've seen one dispensary so far downstate and more are expected in the coming months. But just as an anecdote, we spoke with the minority leader of the state assembly. His name is Will Barclay. He's from the Syracuse area. And, you know, Republicans talk a lot about farmers and small farmers and how the plight of the small farmer is such that they end up having to sell off the family farmland because they can't survive as farmers and then enter growing cannabis. So that was the angle we took in the questioning of Will Barkley. His response was, in general, he didn't know if it was going to work out for farmers, but from what he was hearing, the rollout has been an unmitigated, quote, disaster. That's what I have been hearing as well, because farmers, they played their role, they have their crops, everything has been harvested, they're doing processing, and this cannabis is sitting there, and farmers need to be paid for their work. Also, farmers are now planning for next year. Well, if they haven't been paid for this year, how can they pay for the seeds and planning everything out for next year? Also, these are the farmers who got stiffed with hemp growing for CBD, and many of them are just sitting on biomass from that episode. So this is kind of very, very difficult financially for farmers who's supposed to be a savior families, these old school families have been doing this. The younger generation wanted to get out. They saw cannabis as a way to stay, keep family farms going. And then now they're feeling really, really beaten up and abused. They feel they were promised, okay, they'll do the season, they'll recoup, it'll be a great year, but the stores are not open yet. So let's put it this way. There are minimal places that are purchasing and distributing these products. And it's so not fair to these farmers. Well, let's stick with products because, you know, you have the legitimate markets that are operating in several states now, but you also have the black market that in many spots continues to operate just as it did before because the cost of purchasing recreational marijuana is taxed and thus, in many spots, much more expensive than the same amount you might get from the black market. But the other part of this, and I know we've spoken about this, is that 
there are some other products on the black market and in some other states that we don't have in New York. And I'm thinking of things that maybe even have stronger THC content for medical use. For example, if you go to Amsterdam and Holland, they have pure hash that you can buy. We don't see a lot of that stuff in the more, quote, tame markets like New York. We will be seeing it. I actually know uh, two girls who are applying to do processing to do hash. There was a premier hash maker. His name was Frenchie, and he would travel around the world. People in the cannabis space all knew him. His big thing was hash. There's a real resurgence of cold water bubble hash. I'm seeing it out there. And people are very interested in these more potent forms of cannabis. So we will be seeing hash. If you go to cannabis events, you see many vendors with it. We also see rosin, live rosin, which is flash frozen cannabis, and it's processed without solvents. It's using heat and pressure to turn it into uh, usable products. So on the product market, there's some really nice, interesting things coming in. I haven't seen the whole recreational rollout, what the shops will be offering, but I went to Connecticut. I went on their first day to see what was there. And the medical has stronger products and there's a lot more direction. So if people want to learn, the medical route is still a great way to go. Well, Dr. Lynn Perodnik, we thank you for educating us and for keeping us in the know on the issues of cannabis in New York State. And of course, we hope you'll be back with us on the Legislative Gazette sometime in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, David. does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2306. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.